go. Good morning, everyone. How are we all? We well? Yeah, excellent. Um, it's great to, to be together. It's great to have this opportunity to come and, and share with you today. In the notices, Mike mentioned um, that in a couple of weeks' time, there's going to be a small group of us going off to prayer and equipping. Uh, that's one of the things we do is being part of the relational mission family of churches. It's an opportunity to gather together, uh, to, to receive teaching and to pray together and that sort of thing. And uh, that would be something that me, Stefan and Eva will be going to. We'll be taking Eva with us. Uh, it's not Eva's first time at an, at an event like that. She went to her first prayer and equipping when she was five weeks old. Uh, we, we took her along. I remember that particularly. It was the first time I'd seen her smile. So it holds very fond memories for me that, that week. Um, so, yeah, we took her to that one when, when she was just five weeks old. But in the 19 months since that prayer and equipping, do you know what? She's been to loads of relational mission events and conferences. We actually sat down the other day to try and work out everything that we'd taken Eva to. Uh, she's been to three further prayer and equippings. She's been to the New Day Youth Conference twice. She's been to two of the Enough Half Nights of Prayer. At the last one, she was still awake at midnight. Uh, she completely outlasted most of, most of the adults there. Uh, she's been to an Elders and Wives weekend, she's been to Word Plus twice, she's been to an East Kent Leaders Christmas breakfast, she's been to the Leadership Conference, and she went to the First Reasons Day of Apologetics. She gets dragged everywhere with us when we go. And the reason why I'm telling you this, I'm not trying to be like, look at us as parents, we take our, our child to all of these wonderful things. I'm not saying it for that reason. The reason I'm telling you this is because me and Steph, we absolutely love the church. And we want Eva to grow up loving the church as well. We want her to grow up loving the church here in Faversham, the local church. This is our home. This is our family. And we feel so privileged that Eva gets the opportunity to grow up in this family. It's the same family that Steph and I grew up in. So we're thrilled that she has the chance to do that. But we also want her to realise that we're part of something bigger. Than, than the church here in Faversham. Don't get me wrong, we love the church here in Faversham, but we think it's so important that she understands that we're part of something bigger than that. The church isn't just about us here on, when we gather on a Sunday morning, it's much bigger. So actually, for her to understand that we're part of a bigger family, that we're part of relational mission, we think is hugely important. And actually, we love the fact how uh, people within relational mission have been able to see Eva grow as well. Pretty much every event we go, people will come up and comment on how, uh, how much she's grown and how well she's doing and that sort of stuff. And we, again, we are so, so grateful for relational mission. We feel very privileged to be a part of the relational mission family, which again is one of the reasons why we take Eva to these things. So she gets to see what it's about being a part of this, this great family called the church. I'm really excited this morning uh, because this morning is the start of a new six-week series that we're kicking, we're kicking off where we're going to be looking at what it means to be a part of relational mission, what it means to be a part of this family of churches. Bearing in mind that relational mission still comes under the umbrella of New Frontiers, so it's still New Frontiers Church, but it's one of the smaller families that makes up New Frontiers. What we want to do over these six weeks is to look at some of the, some of the values and qualities uh, that relational mission holds uh, as we look to journey together as part of that family. I'm, I'm fully aware that some of us would have more involvement uh, in terms of the relational mission uh, group of churches we would have kind of been able to engage in and interact on on different levels uh, but it's so important that we all understand if as Fabian Community Church if we say we're a part of relational mission all of us need to kind of be on the same page in terms of what that means uh, and to really understand uh, what that means for us as a family 
the series has pretty much been inspired by this book uh, that was written by Mike Betts, who heads up and leads the relational uh, leads relational mission. It's called Relational Mission: A Way of Life. Uh, we flagged this up a number of months ago. It was released at the leadership conference in June, and we we bought a copy as a church. We bought bought a copy for every household within the church. Hopefully, most of you, if not all of you, have got a copy of this. If you haven't, uh, we've still got copies available, so please make sure today that you do get hold of a copy. Can I really encourage you, if you haven't started reading it, or if you've read bits and pieces of it, can I encourage you to be reading this as we go through the series as well, just to have it alongside. What we want to do is for this with the series is to really kind of to be able to focus on a number of the aspects of, of this book and to kind of dig a little deeper in terms of what that means for us here in Faversham. But actually, if you can be reading this as the series goes on, that would be really, really helpful. And I think it would be of great benefit to all of us if we do that as well. So this morning's going to be an introduction, really, to the series. Uh, and then for the, that's going to take up the first, maybe sort of third to a half. Uh, and then I'm going to be focusing on prayer, because that's really one of the core values, one of the core focuses uh, of relational mission is going to be prayer. But the question we need to, to ask right at the very start of this is, why did they choose the name relational mission? Where did it come from? What actually does it convey to us and tell us about what it means to be a part of this family? I was reading the other day uh, about um, victory gardens or war gardens. I wasn't really aware of this, but I was reading about it the other day. So I think it was particularly in World War II. It could have been in World War I as well. A number of, uh, of countries that were really being affected by the war. There was a real pressure in terms of the public food supply. Rationing was fully in force. And these victory gardens were brought in uh, where people were encouraged to grow their own fruit uh, and vegetables and, and herbs. And it was very much a um, whatever land there was, let's make use of it to, to try and alleviate the pressure on the on the food supply. So people were uh, really kind of dedicating their gardens to, to growing produce. People, there were parks, I think, and public spaces, uh, churchyards, um, I think schools were using some of their fields and that sort of stuff, and really investing in these victory gardens, say, to produce this, this fruit and these vegetables just to alleviate the pressure on the ration food supply. But what these gardens also provided was that they were catalysts for community. They really brought people together. You had people that would have been living together they would, uh, in, terms of like it, um, in terms of being neighbours with one another. They might not necessarily have known much about one another, but actually, in, in terms of these victory gardens, it really sparked community. People who would previously knew each other as neighbours, real friendship developed and grew. And there's this sense of, real sense of let's come together and let's give ourselves to this. And if you were to look at some pictures, if you were to, to look into some books, or if you do a, a search on the internet, for Victory Gardens, there are these just the most uh, amazing pictures of these people that are just all working together on this same task. And it's a real mixture of ages. Uh, I think in some of the pictures you can pretty much see three generations of the same family working together uh, at this effort. And it could be, you know, sometimes you had twos or threes working together. Sometimes it would be groups of tens or twenties. Sometimes there was just huge groups working on these massive plots of land, really giving their all uh, to producing this fruit and these vegetables. And what these Victory Gardens provided, they were communities that were working together for a common purpose. They had a purpose, they had something that they were working towards. There was a reason why these gardens were being set up, but it was also this real sense of community, a real catalyst for community, a bringing together of the communities and society. 
And really, just from, from my perspective, just thinking about it, in that situation, community must have been such an important thing. This real sense of community spirit, being there to support one another, looking out for one another, keeping one another, uh, keeping morale high and that sort of thing. So what we had, we've got a combination of community and common purpose coming together. That's really what these Victory Gardens were about. Now, at the heart of relational mission is very similar. So kind of the DNA, what it is that defines who we are as a family of churches, the heart is very similar because we are called to a common purpose. We are called to a mission. This is a mission not just for relational mission, but this is something that, all, that everyone who is a follower of Jesus, every disciple of Jesus is called to. In Matthew 28, Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And he says that they are to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. This was what they were to give themselves to. This was the mission that Jesus had given to his followers. So our mission is to tell the world about Jesus. That's really what it is. We are to tell the world about Jesus. We're to make him known. We're to be his witnesses. We're to tell them of the things that we've seen and heard and experienced of what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus. So we've got a mission, but we're also called to relationship. You know, when Jesus called his disciples to himself, what he didn't do was send them off with a list of jobs or tasks and say, right, when you've got these done, come back and report to me. I'll give you something else to be doing. That's not at all the way that Jesus related with his disciples. John 15, 15, it tells us, Jesus said this to his followers. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all, that you have, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. These were Jesus' friends that he'd gathered to himself. They weren't colleagues. They were his friends. He was, he was um, looking for, for genuine uh, friendship, genuine relationship with them. He called the disciples and he shared life with them. They ate together. They traveled together. They went to parties together. When they went to the wedding, they shared barbecues on the beach. They did life together they shared life with one another and genuine friendship it's also characterized in the early church you can see it throughout the new testament when i was um two or three weeks ago i think it was we were over at beacon church in herne bay it's part of the relational mission family of churches again this is one of the ways in which we can uh, bless one another as churches so we uh, i was over there and the series that they were looking at over the summer was looking at the letter of one thessalonians so it's a letter written by paul to the church in thessalonica and as you read through the, through the, the letter of 1 Thessalonians, there, you cannot escape just this genuine affection and love and care that Paul and Silas had for the church. It, it, you just cannot miss it. There are phrases like this within the letter. This is how Paul's writing to the church. He says, you are our glory and joy. He says, we are affectionately desirous for you. There's just this real sense of love and friendship and relationship. And New Testament life was a dynamic combination of relationship, genuine friendship and relationship, and mission. We've got community and common purpose, and that's what we see when we look at the early church. We have to be careful that we don't focus solely on relationship, and we don't focus solely on mission, because if we do, we're missing, uh, we're missing something very important. You see, if we focus only on, on relationship, what happens is you become very inward-looking, you're just so concerned about the friendships and relationships that you have that you forget that there's a world outside. You forget that there's a world that needs to hear 
about Jesus. So if you focus only on relationship, there's a potential danger there that you just kind of, this is, this is our family, this is who we are. Let's enjoy relationship with one another and friendship with one another. But we can become inward looking. And when you become inward looking, you become barren. You're not fruitful because you've forgotten about the mission that you have. But if we focus only on mission, there's a potential danger that we become too task focused and driven. Everything's just about the mission, just about the mission, just about the mission. Mike Betts in the book, he puts it like this. He says that fruitful mission is connected to a healthy relational root system. So we've got a foundation and a root system of good friendships, genuine relationships. And it's from that, that is what actually helps to fuel us in the mission that we share together. So we've got these two things working together, relationship and mission. And this combination of relationship and mission, it needs to start at the very basic level in terms of uh, it needs to be what every disciple is, is committed to. So it works itself out in individual disciples, in the local church, and within families of churches. So we've got a combination of relationship and mission for me and for you, for us as Faversham Community Church. That's what we want, the heart of Faversham Community Church to be about. We're on mission, but we're on mission together as a family. And then that extends further into what it means to be a part of relational mission with the churches that make up relational mission. And beyond that as well, with the worldwide church. I think families, the sorts of family that we're called to be look a little bit like this. I think families like this, they stand together. They pray together. They eat together. They encourage one another. They laugh together. They grieve together. They play together. They, they confess to one another. They worship together. They share stories. They think, read and discuss together. They bring perspective to one another's situations. That's, what, that's the kind of family that we want to be. But it's something that each of us as individuals need to be committed to. Relationship and mission for me, for the church, and for the wider church. <coughs> and again in the book, Mike Betts says this. He says that relational mission is not just a name. While it is the name that we've got, it's not just a name. It's a conviction. It's a way of life. So it's not something just about when we meet together, but it's something that should really uh, motivate us and inspire us and direct us through, through every aspect of our life. It should be a way of living. Now over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at how being on a mission as family, how it works itself out through three particular areas, through prayer, people and planting. The rest of this morning, I'm going to be looking a bit at prayer and then Mike is going to be looking at prayer again next week, but very much from a corporate prayer sense. So what it means to pray together uh, for us as a church here, but also as part of relational mission. Then we're going to have three weeks looking at how we can be witnesses for Jesus, how we can make him known through words, works and wonders. Uh, at, during those weeks we're going to have Carl Maidment from uh, Church on the Weald in Tenterden and also Martin Gibson from the Vine in Maidstone both of those churches, relational mission churches we've asked them if they'll come in and, and spend a bit of time with us and share with us so that's something to really look forward to so that's going to be an excellent time uh, and then Luke uh, in the last week is going to be sharing with us about church planting as someone who's had experience he and his wife Anna were in Japan for a number of years looking to establish a church. So actually we're going to look at what it means to be a part of uh, what church planting looks like because there's this need to, to start new families. Families reproduce. That's what they should do. And, and as churches we should have that in mind as well, that we're to look to start 
new families as well. So they're the things we're going to be looking at over these six, six weeks. But one of the main focuses of relational mission is prayer. And I know it's very much on Mike Bett's heart that he has a desire that we would be committed to praying together as local churches. Should be one of the, it should be, if not the most important thing that we give ourselves to. For us as local churches, but then also uh, wider than that, relational mission, uh, particularly through the enough half nights of prayer as well. They really uh, have such a heart for that and hold that in such high regard and high esteem. And that's going to be something that Mike will pick up on next week. But for the rest of this morning, I want us to look at prayer, kind of to, to lay some foundations, really. So whether we're talking about prayer in terms of your own personal prayer time when, when you're on your own, or whether we're praying with others, we just want to look at a few, touch on a few areas of, of what prayer is about. So if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to Matthew and chapter 6, we're going to head there in just a moment. So prayer. John Calvin, he said that prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Essentially what that means is that prayer is the primary way in which your faith expresses itself. So the faith that you have in the, work, in the person and the work of Jesus, the faith that we have in God, prayer is the way that that works itself out. It's how we express the faith that we have. Prayer is always a response to God. It's a response to who he is, and it's a response to what he's done, and to what he's done for us. Prayer's a conversation, but it's not a one-way, superficial conversation. I know I've definitely had, I've tried to convince myself that what, when I've been talking to someone, I've had a conversation. It's not, it's just me relaying information to them on a fairly superficial level. Prayer's not like that. Prayer is not just a simple exchange of information, but prayer is a deep, two-way conversation. It's where I get to speak to God, but I also get to hear him speaking to me and sharing his heart with me. Prayer is where we grow not solely in knowledge about God, but we grow in knowing God. That's come through already with what we were praying for our, for our children and young people this morning. And also for us, that it's not just about learning more about God, but actually we get to know God in a deeper way. That's what prayer enables us to do. And prayer is of such importance that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He didn't, te he didn't teach them how to teach. He didn't teach them how to, to lead in that sense, he, but he did teach his disciples how to pray. Jesus knew how important it was. In Matthew 6, verse 9, this is how Jesus says that we're to pray. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The first point I want to make this morning about prayer is that prayer is intimacy. Prayer is intimacy. So Jesus says this, when you pray, pray then like this. Our Father. That's the starting point of prayer, our Father. So in the word Father, we see the first and basic lesson in prayer. The relationship that Jesus has always had with his Father, he now shares it with us. Jesus has opened up that relationship that we can address, uh, we can address God as our Father. And that's the way, that's the, the approach that we're to have when we come in prayer. Romans 8, 14 to 16 says, 
that for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So for those who have been saved by Jesus, for those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, we are not slaves, but we are sons and daughters. Therefore, we relate to God as sons and daughters. We relate to God with confidence and not fear. So as we approach God in prayer, as we approach God to converse with him, we come with that uh, from the position of being sons and daughters. It means that when we approach God in prayer, we don't need to plead our case for a hearing. We don't need to convince him that he should listen to us or that he should give us time. I was thinking about this and about the way my relationship with Eva, my daughter, she doesn't need to plead her case for a hearing with me. She doesn't have to prove herself worthy or deserving of my time or my attention. She doesn't have to strive for my acceptance. She is already accepted because of who she is, because she's my daughter. She doesn't have to prove herself to me. I love to spend time with her. I love to be with her because of who she is, not because of anything that she's done. And it's the same when we approach God in prayer. Prayer is done from a place of rest and from a place of acceptance. We're not striving to be accepted by God. When we come to pray, we come from a place of already having been accepted, which is why we can address him as our father. By addressing God as our father, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves right at the very beginning of of our prayers that the person that I'm speaking to loves me, that the person I'm speaking to is for me, and that they want the very best for me. And everything else that we would go on to pray is founded upon God's love and goodness towards us. Isn't that wonderful? We, um, it was a hot festival last weekend and Steph was working on one of the stalls. Uh, and on the Saturday, uh, Eva was with grandparents in the morning and then she was with me in the afternoon and we popped in from time to time just to see how Steph was doing and how Steph was getting on. And then that evening, Steph and I were out uh, at a birthday party in a restaurant. So Steph had barely, barely seen Eva over the course of the day. And when we were sat down, we were waiting for our food to come out. Steph got her phone out. She wanted to show me a picture of Eva that she'd taken a few days before. And then what happened was she just started scrolling through. It was one picture and two pictures. And then it, she wasn't showing me pictures anymore. She was just looking at these pictures of Eva. And I asked her if she was all right. And she just said she just had missed her. She'd barely seen her all day and she just missed her and wanted to be with her. We were out, we were having a good time, but she just wanted to to be able to see her. God desires to be with his people. God desires to be with you. We see throughout scripture time and time again, God pursues his people. God is a pursuer. He pursues his people and he draws them to him. And this is demonstrated, uh, nowhere is this dem- clearly, more clearly demonstrated than through Jesus. Jesus offered up his life. He endured the shame of the cross in order to reconcile us to God. To bring us back into relationship with his father in such a way that we too can now address God as our father. That is how desirous of you God is. That he sent his only son so that just as Jesus addresses God as father we can do the same thing. So prayer is intimacy. Secondly, prayer has primacy. 
prayer has primacy. If something has primacy, it means that it's the most important thing. For the Apostle Paul, prayer was clearly the thing that he desired and cherished above everything else. In 2 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he's writing to the church in Corinth. And he asks them, he says, you, all, you also must help us by prayer. So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul doesn't ask for money. He doesn't ask for workers. He doesn't ask for encouragement. He doesn't work, ask in this moment for ideas. All of those things are excellent. And we need those things as we're looking to, to see the gospel advance. But for Paul, he was adamant that the church must stand with him and to help them by prayer. That was the first thing he asked them to do. First and foremost, we need you to be praying for us. And the question for us is, do we see prayer the same way that Paul does? Do we see prayer as having primacy? Is it the most important thing for us? <laughs> Last week, I was looking at the story of Daniel. Uh, we were looking at how Daniel was a man who lived up to his name. Uh, his name meant God is my judge. So he was someone that lived looking first and foremost, how, how do I live my life in a way that is pleasing to God? I'm not going to serve any other gods. I'm not going to serve any other kings or other powers. I'm going to serve God and God alone. And I used a quote in there that I just want to bring back this week because I think it's really helpful. And it was from a sermon that John Piper did looking at the story of Daniel. And he said that one of the most amazing examples of Daniel's living out his name is his prayer life. God is my judge means that what God thinks and what God does matters more than what anybody else in the world thinks or does. For Daniel, that meant a life of daring, defiant, disciplined prayer. If what God thinks matters most, then you consult him most. If what God does matters most, then you ask him to act first. In other words, you live your life by prayer. So for Daniel, prayer had primacy. It was the most important thing. I've been really challenged by this over the last couple of weeks, and particularly as I was looking at uh, preparing, talking about the story of Daniel. It's challenged me because it's got me thinking this. Does my prayer life reflect what I say I believe about God? Does my prayer life reflect what I say I believe about God? If I say what God thinks and what God does is more important than what, than what anyone else in the world uh, thinks or does, does my prayer life reflect that? As disciples, individually as disciples and as a church, we need to consult God most. We need to ask him to act first. As Jesus taught the disciples to pray, the order, uh, of, the order is really important. See, before asking for needs to be met, whether that's with food, finance, health, work, having problems with the car that we need to be resolved, before we ask for any of those things, what we're called to ask is for God's name to be hallowed. That means that it's treated with the highest honour. We are called to ask for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. That's where, that's, so our Father in heaven, and we pray for his um, name to be hallowed, his kingdom to come and his will to be done. What that means is that above all else, his kingdom would advance. That God would rule and reign in the hearts and lives of believers and throughout the church. And as he does so, that they would increasingly reflect his love, obey his laws, honour him, do good to all people and proclaim the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Sam Albury, some of you may have heard of him, he's a pastor and a, and a writer. 
He says that when Jesus teaches us to, sorry, what Jesus teaches us to pray for in the Lord's Prayer shows us that the goal of prayer is not to bend God's will to us, but to bend our will to his. Prayer is about allowing God to shape us to become the people that he wants us to become. It's about seeking God for what is most important to him, what is on his heart, what he cares about, what he is desirous for, and allowing him to shape us to his will rather than trying to persuade him to turn to us. Prayer draws us closer to God. It's one of the reasons why prayer has primacy because it's the way that, um, it, it's one of the ways in which God shapes us and changes us and speaks to us. So prayer is intimacy, prayer has primacy, and thirdly, prayer is persistent. Prayer is persistent. So having already taught his disciples how to pray, Jesus then shares with them the following story that we see in Luke 18. He told them a parable to the effect that they are always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to, cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So if the meaning of that parable has the potential to be missed scriptures make it very clear it actually tells us the reason why jesus was sharing the story he told them the parable so uh, to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart jesus says this is kind of the principle of this story that i'm telling you so that you keep pressing on in prayer don't lose heart if you don't see your prayer or you don't your prayers don't seem to be answered keep pressing on and don't lose heart i think if jesus felt the need to tell the story then it's most likely that this story was very much needed. It's very easy to give up on prayer. Some people say the easiest thing about prayer is to give up. But Jesus is very clear. He says, don't give up. Keep pressing in. Keep bringing your requests to God. D.A. Carson once said that many of us in our praying are like little boys who ring front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. It's quite a funny picture, but I think he's got a really good point. Quickly pray a prayer to God, and then we'll stop and run away before we've actually given God a chance to answer. We'll pray a prayer once. Oh no, I haven't really seen any answer to that yet. I'm not going to carry on. But that's the absolute opposite to how Jesus teaches us to pray. And that's what Jesus is doing in the parable. He's teaching us how to pray. Jesus has given us permission to come back time and time again with the same requests, to be tenacious, to be tireless, in a sense to be irritating to God in the same way that the widow was irritating to the judge. We just keep coming back time and time again and that is what God wants us to do. That's what God wants us to do. If God has spoken promises over you, then speak them back to him. God, you've said you're going to do this. God, you've promised this. God, you've spoken this. I'm not going to stop until you do it. I think, 
perhaps sometimes we think that to, to be like that, to have that sort of attitude can be a bit rude, a bit, you know, just might not sit right with us the way that we were brought up, the way we're expected to be. Whether that's something that's cultural or not, I don't, I'm not too sure it matters in the sense that actually we need to be shaped by how God calls us to be rather than what our culture tells us to be. We want to be shaped by God first and foremost. Mike Reeves wrote a book called Enjoy Your Prayer Life. We actually looked through that as a church uh, a couple of years ago now. And he says that, of course, God could give to us and bless us without asking and how often uh, and how he regularly does that in his grace. But the God of fellowship wants fellowship with us. He wants us to argue his promises and his character with him. For then who he is becomes an ever more conscious reality for us. We grow as we persist. persist. We develop in our appreciation that he is our friend. That he is the source of all blessing and that we and the world need him to be put right. So actually impressing in and persisting. Saying, God, these are the things you've spoken. God, this is who you are. I know these things are, are, are true. If you are like this, then Lord, would you answer this? And actually God loves it when we wrestle with him, when we persist with him, when we just speak the truth of who he is and the truth of what he's done and kind of argue these things back to him. Don't think you're being rude. God tells you to do this. Jesus says you have permission to do this. Be an irritant to God in that sense that you're just persistently bringing your prayers back to him. Don't be like that little boy who knocks the door and runs off before anyone's answered. Have the attitude of the widow. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep asking. I'm going to keep asking because I know who my father is. And because I know the promises that he has spoken. George Muller, he was an absolutely amazing man. He was an evangelist uh, and he um, set up many orphanages, cared for, for many orphans. I think they, they estimate he probably uh, provided shelter and care for over 10,000 orphans over his lifetime. But in November of 1844, George Muller, he committed to pray for the conversion of five individuals. Okay, so he had five people in mind that he was praying for that they would get saved. And every day, without, without fail, wherever he was, whatever he was doing, he said whether he was in good health or in bad health, he never missed a day praying for these five individuals. 18 months after he committed to pray, the first individual got saved. He thanked God for them, and he continued to pray for the remaining four. Five years lapsed, and the second individual got converted. Still he pressed on. Still he continued. It was a further six years until the third person got converted. At the time of his death in 1898, 54 years, if my maths is right, 54 years after he had first committed to praying for these five individuals all but one of them had been converted and then that one individual they too came to Christ after Muller had died that to us should be a real example of what persistent prayer looks like 54 years every day without fail whatever he was doing however he felt whether in good health or bad he prayed for these five individuals and now these are five people whose eternities are secure in Christ and he committed 54 years. That's persistence. 
surely that is what Jesus was looking for when he shared the parable of the, of the persistent widow. Keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep asking, keep asking, keep asking because you know who your father is. So prayer is intimacy. We, we, when we pray, we come as children to our father. Prayer has primacy. It's the most important thing. And prayer is persistent. We're to press on and to not give up. Can the band come up? We're going to head back into a time of worship together. Just as the band are getting themselves ready. Mike mentioned in the notices that we've got our prayer meeting coming up next week. Uh, and this week, this coming week. And... Um, the focus of the September and October prayer meetings, we're really going to press into God. And we're going to just ask him for Jesus to be made known in our town. We're going to just pray for lives to be changed and for gospel impact throughout our town. That's what we're going to do through September and October. That's the focus. God's spoken promises over us that there's going to be opportunities for, for the gospel to go out, for lives to be changed, and for the gospel to have an impact. So we're going to bring that back to God. God, you've said you're going to do this. We're going to be persistent, and we're going to bring that back. So that's what we're going to be committing to. We're going to be praying for, for specific individuals, for family and friends and neighbours, for their salvation as well. And it's also a focus for growth groups and 20s and 30s when we meet over the coming months to pray with this in mind every time groups meet we're going to come to God every time growth groups meet and every time we're together together to pray as a church we're going to be praying for people to get saved and for the gospel to be made known and for God's kingdom to advance see when we gather to when we gather to pray we do so as sons and daughters to our father we do that together as a family we're brothers and sisters sons and daughters of the living God so we come together with that understanding as those who are welcomed and accepted when we gather to pray, we recognise that prayer has primacy. We realise that we need a move of God and we need to lean into his sure promises. And as we gather to pray, we're persistent. Just as Muller prayed for those individuals, we're going to be lifting up family and friends and neighbours to God that we want to see God come and just, just, change, just change their lives and change everything for them. So that's what we're going to do, just so you're, just so you're aware of that. Shall we stand? Let's prepare ourselves to come and worship.